Welcome to NACSW's Podcast of the Month. Our podcast program makes available recordings of a wide variety of NACSW presentations and discussions on topics of particular interest to Christians in social work. Our Podcast of the Month program features a new podcast every 30 days for your listening pleasure. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. I am happy to be here and so glad to see all of you. Um, now, I just want to give you a little caveat. I carry my own fur coat, so if I get a little warm, you'll see me fanning from time to time because we don't have the ability to modulate the environment in here. Um, so what I want to do before I get into the actual presentation is just review my presentation agenda. I'm going to be giving an overview of my study, talking about the findings, also presenting and identifying opportunities as well as recommendations, identifying conclusions, and then a recap of this presentation goal, and then an application discussion. I want to invite all of you to work with me towards identifying ways that um, my suggested recommendations and suggested opportunities uh, may work for you, and I would love that feedback. Mm -hmm. So towards that end, what I'm going to do is give each of you a set of questions Thank you. That I'd like you to look at, and I'm just going to give this to you to pass on. That I'd like you to take a look at, and keep in mind as I go through this presentation, so that when it comes time for you to actually engage in this area, yes, that um, some thoughts may have already been generating for you. Now, one note, I just want to make a comment that I will be using extensive quotes in this presentation. This is a qualitative study, and the use of the extensive quotation comes from a couple of different places. One is that I use a womanist theoretical framework in order to design and implement my research. And a womanist epistemology, first of all, womanism comes out of the African-American community. And the epistemology, the way of generating knowledge in a womanist theoretical framework, includes the use of testimony and conversation. That testimony and conversation are valid means of being able to generate information, and that unfolds in the conversation that occurs. So I'm excited about that, and so I'm using the extensive quotations to basically be able to bring the voice of the participants with me into this room, effectively making them co-presenters, even though I will be keeping their names at bay. Okay? So thank you for that. All right, so the goals that I have for this presentation, as previously identified, are that I will build your understanding of four contexts that generate African-American Protestant clergy perspectives about intimate partner violence. Five, best, five clinical best practices that are used by the clergy, and the main obstacle to church social work collaboration and three ways to improve on this. All right, as I go into it, I'd like to share a verse with you from Matthew 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. My hope is that from what I share today, that we're going to find ourselves more equipped to participate in and at times defend against the onslaught 
of domestic violence in the church. The pastor's words. It is that one is not called to stay in violence, and we should try to stop the violence while loving both persons and trying to be supportive and seeking help for both persons. So the purpose of this study, again, is to improve an understanding with regards to the perspectives and practices of African-American clergy in regards to partner violence in their church. There were eight clergy participants, and in a qualitative study, um, especially when your resources are yourself, Mm -hmm. they tend to be small. The clergy are from the northeastern region of the United States, six men and two women. Three of the eight are immigrants. Two have professional experience in the court systems. In terms of education, seven of the eight have masters, and the additional person has a bachelor with added training. And in addition to that, two have professional master's degrees in mental health profession. So at least two people have two masters, and a third person, I believe, has three masters. There are five different denominations represented, African Methodist Episcopal, Baptist, Full Gospel Church of God, and that is self-identified as being a Pentecostal denomination, Presbyterian, and Seventh-day Adventist. (coughs) Now, in regards to rigor, when it comes to qualitative study, We look at trustworthiness, credibility, dependability, and authenticity. And that's how rigor is increased by accounting for as many and even more of the different ways of checking the data, making sure that what you're talking about is accurate, Mm -hmm. and presenting it in as authentic a form as possible. So I'm just going to give you a brief rundown on exactly what those words mean when it comes to qualitative study. Trustworthiness roughly parallels objectivity in quantitative, qualitative, sorry, in quantitative research you have objectivity and trustworthiness roughly parallels that. Credibility is a way of looking at the data over a period of time so you're prolonging your engagement with that. Dependability is a form of reliability. And that's usually by having a third party review your data and giving you feedback on your process. And then, of course, there's authenticity, being able to present the research data, represent the research data as authentically as possible, as close as possible to what was given to you during those interviews. So ways that I accounted for that in my process was that I did the interviews, I conducted them, and then transcribe them verbatim. After I've transcribed them, I replayed those transcriptions while playing, reread those transcriptions while playing the actual interview to double check my um, accuracy in taking down all of the information. The transcriptions were reviewed by the participants to ensure that they were accurately represented. And then several participants also gave me feedback on the findings of the research. And that is in addition to having um, a third party review my process. 
Okay, and I just want to say a little bit about me and where I'm coming from as a researcher. I am African descended from peoples that in the line back came from Africa. Specifically, I am Jamaican and I'm an immigrant to this country. And in this country, I've been here now for a number of years, I politically identify as African American. Now, all of these things can influence the way that I gather and interpret data. So I try to account for that in a number of different ways listed here. So I utilize a qualitative descriptive design where I am describing what was presented to me. I use conventional content analysis. Um, I did take field notes of my observations from those interviews, and I utilized open-ended questions. Now, the limitations of this research include the fact that it is a small sample size. There are fewer women than, and, than men in the study, and the gender differences were not explored. Also, it's possible that regional differences may exist. I interviewed pastors in the Northeast region of the United States. It's a big country, and there are going to possibly be regional differences. Those I did not get to explore in this research. And it's possible that clinical parallels in the content may differ when clergy are not the ones directly applying the interventions in their churches. So these are some considerations in terms of potential limitations. And in addition to that, you also have the issue of self-selection. Those that agree to participate may have very different views than those who don't. So why religion? Why African-Americans and why clergy? Well, fundamentalists are more likely to go to clergy than anyone else when it comes to addressing their mental health concerns. African-Americans seem to prefer faith-based organizations in terms of addressing their issues. And clergy are change agents in their churches. They are change agents with regards to social interactions in the African-American community. So it's a perfect place to start. And again, I mentioned I'm Christian. So I'm very interested in what's happening in this community, especially in regards to the intersection of faith with intimate partner violence. And that brings me to this slide. Why am I looking at intimate partner violence? It is defined by the Centers for Prevention of Disease Control, Centers for Disease Prevention and Control, where intimate partner violence is a preventable public health issue. And that makes it perfect for us to look at, to find ways to eradicate it. The risk factors for intimate partner violence. Those risk factors include a history of violence between the parents, a history of victimization by violence in childhood, drug and alcohol use, the presence of alcohol and drug problems, and then there's sociodemographics. And I'm going to go into sociodemographics in a little bit more detail. Sociodemographics can include race, uh, gender, income, and marital status. Now with gender, more women report being victims of intimate partner violence significantly more frequently than men do. In terms of income, where the income of the woman is higher than the male, there is an increased incidence of domestic violence towards the female. 
and marital status. While married women have the lowest rate of incidence in regards to non-fatal incidents of domestic violence, they have the highest rates of murder. And this is from the National Crime Victimization Survey that was done in 2004. Now, race. African Americans and Native Americans and Alaskan Native women report the highest rates of intimate partner violence within their communities. These numbers come from the 2000 National Violence Against Women survey. However, the numbers don't change much 10 years later in the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey. So again, what we're finding is that across the board, across the various ethnic groups in this country, women of color have the highest incidence of intimate partner violence. How am I defining intimate partner violence? I'm using a definition from Bent Goodley and Fowler in 2006, which is that it is one person's abusive use of power to control another. I also fold into that the details from the CDC, which is that it includes physical, sexual, mental or emotional violence and or threatening or intimidating behavior. So my findings. These are the themes that emerged from the data that I collected. Those themes include context, shaping the perspectives of the clergy, their perspectives in terms of what are factors in intimate partner violence, violence both secular and theological, pastoral counseling training and their concerns with that training, counseling practices, what I identified as clinical best practices and where it diverges from that, intimate partner, um, violence and the pulpit, how it's discussed by the clergy from the pulpit. The church culture, what's going on there? And then the issue of silence in the church. Seeds of transformation, collaboration with the churches, and then I talk about recommendations, conclusions, and future research. So the context Wherever we go in the church, the church is the reflection of the leader's philosophic, con philosophic conception. No matter what we do, we can't escape this as the foundational perspective that shapes where the clergy are coming from. We can do all different kinds of outreach, but we, it's important for us to partner with the clergy to more clearly understand how they're thinking about what's going on in the church. And it is a reflection of their standpoint. Clergy influence. It's the senior pastor who has the strongest influence, who's called the father of the work that has the strongest influence. The trust that the parishioners have in their pastor is a powerful tool in his or her hand to influence their lives. The pastor has a lot of power. Some of the limitations, despite the fact that they can be so powerful in their churches, include some people are already trained in the church. 
but they don't utilize their expertise because of the leader being threatened. The problem is, in some ways, pastors think, if I don't trust this person's faith, or if that person is lying, or this thinking is contrary to mine, so therefore, I'm not going to let that person into my church. These are the perspectives that we encounter as we're entering the churches. And it's important for us to understand not just that we are Christians as we go into the churches, but even in Christianity, there are different denominations, and our philosophical perspectives might differ from that of the pastor. So it's important to understand where that pastor is coming from. The secular groups that they identify include female esteem issues, male ego and male esteem issues, and male ego is male privilege. Male and female aggression. Now this is an interesting um, finding because there is in the literature a type of partner violence that's called common couple violence. And that is where whoever is aggressed against then returns that particular favor. So both partners are violent, and there is no true victim because both are compatible in the relationship, and the clergy are saying that they're seeing this. There's also what they're finding is money, drugs, and community violence. All of this is not just coming from the research. It is undergirded and supported in the research, but all of this comes from their observation of what they're seeing in their churches. In terms of spiritual factors, I feel that there is no spiritual integrity. God is not present. The Spirit of God is absent and there is violence. And I feel that if the Spirit of God is not there, there is emptiness and the devil has a tendency to fill the emptiness and the result will be violence. So with that perspective then, how are the pastors looking at and thinking about the way domestic violence is manifesting in the couples? Whenever Christians are involved in a violent relationship, they've compartmentalized their Christianity versus their reality. They will make no reference to Jesus Christ or spirituality at all until you bring it up. And yet, while they define intimate partner violence as I've previously identified, there is an addition, an expansion of that definition. That expansion includes serial adultery. I include serial adultery as part of ongoing domestic violence because of the damage it does to the spouse. The same kind of horrific effect it has on them in terms of the suffered damage and the fact that they find themselves, interestingly enough, very powerless to get out of that kind of relationship, in the same way that the people who are in the physical violence are powerless to get out of that experience. So they're defining it similarly to what we have already heard.